One of the givens in this world is that things never stay the same. We are always learning and we are always improving, or we should be. This is as true for the veterinary profession as it is anywhere else. The information changes are based on must come from somewhere though. Many of us will be aware of the change in recommendations as to the timing of desexing dogs. When I trained, it was almost written in stone that it was by six months. It would now appear that the timing isn't quite that simple. Early spay and neutering has been associated with an increase in non-traumatic orthopaedic injuries in larger dogs. Where did this information come from? One of the major studies the updated recommendations are based on is the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study run by the Morris Animal Foundation. The Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is one of the largest, most comprehensive prospective animal health studies in the United States. The study's purpose is to identify the nutritional, environmental, lifestyle and genetic factors for cancer and other diseases in dogs. Each year, with the help of veterinarians and dog owners, the Foundation collects health, environmental and behavioural data on 3,000 plus enrolled Golden Retrievers and has just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Today, we have a chat with veterinarian Dr Kelly Deal, Senior Director of Science and Communication for the Morris Animal Foundation, about her organisation and more specifically, the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. You are listening to The Vet Podcast, presented by veterinarian Dr Brian Greger from New Zealand. Join us as we discuss pet health issues from around the world. We have got veterinarian Dr Kelly Deal with us here today. Kelly is the Senior Director of Science and Communication for the Morris Animal Foundation. She is also a presenter on the Fresh Scoop podcast. Kelly, thanks very much for joining us. First up... Can you give us an overview of the Morris Animal Foundation? Sure, and thanks for having me on. It's great to be on an international podcast. For those folks who don't know us, we've been around a long time, about 75 years. And we were started by Dr. Mark Morris Sr., which is where we get our name. And Dr. Morris was a really interesting guy. He was one of the first people in the United States to have a only small animal-oriented practice back in the early 1920s. But pretty quickly, he realized there just wasn't a lot of research directed at animal health problems. And he set out to change that. One of the things that he did, which may be familiar to you guys if you know anything about Hill's Pet Foods and those prescription diets, Dr. Morris made the first one in the kitchen of his veterinary clinic. And that was KD, for those of you who have animals on kidney diet. And pretty soon, the demand overgrew what he and his wife could produce in the kitchen of their uh, house. And he hooked up with Hills, which was a meatpacking company. And they switched completely to making pet foods. And over the years, he and his son actually created all those prescription diets. Well, Dr. Mark Morris Sr. was very canny. And I told you he was interested in research for animal health. And what he did is he had them set aside, Hills, a half a cent a can for every sale 
that they made, and that made the Morris Animal Foundation. That's what our endowment is based on, and that funded our first few studies. Now, of course, we solicit donations from people, but we still have that endowment, and that's how we came to be. Ah, so if my memory is correct, when I was studying it in the early years of me practicing, we had this big blue tome with recipes in the back for things like kidney and liver disease. And it was called something like clinical small animal nutrition or small animal clinical nutrition. But it was by someone in Morris. Is this the same guy? Yep, same guy. And a lot of us have those blue books that were, it was small animal clinical nutrition, I think was one of the first ones. And because I went to school quite a while ago, right, in the United States, Dr. Mark Morris Jr. would actually come to your vet school and hand these things out and talk to you about nutrition because I, at the time when I went through vet school, it was a tiny part of the curriculum and very neglected, I think, unless it related specifically to disease. But that's the same guy. So you've touched a little on your background, Kelly. What was your pathway to get to where you are now with Morris Animal Foundation? Right. Well, I was in practice for a long time. I actually went through an internship and residency and became board certified in small animal internal medicine. So I'm an ACBAM diplomate, which is a fancy name. And I practiced for about 25 years. About 11 years ago, I decided to sort of pre-retire is like I like to say it. And I uh, happened to transition into medical writing, got really lucky because I had had a Morris Animal Foundation grant, had a study. We made a publication from the study. I happened to call the foundation to say, hey, I've got all these preprints. For those of us who remember preprints, which they'd send you this stack of articles, you know, your article that you could distribute. And I said, where am I going to send these things? They happened to ask me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm transitioning to medical writing. And they said, would you like a job? And that's how I came to Morris uh, about nine years ago now. (laughs) Boom. And you're still there. Let's sort of cut to the chase about what we're actually here to talk about today, Kelly. The Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. What's that? It's a longitudinal study that is one of the few studies that we're running out of the foundation. Usually we give grants out to organizations and typically vet schools to do work. But this one we're running, it is we're following 3,000 golden retrievers throughout their lifetime. And we're in, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. Dogs had to be between six months and two years of age. We started recruiting in 2012 and we finished enrolling our 3,000th, 3,000th, that's hard to say, dog in March of 2015. And And we've been following them ever since. What these folks do is every year they get a physical examination and Biological samples are collected. They answer a very long questionnaire. Their veterinarians also answer a very long questionnaire. If they develop cancer, because ostensibly the basis for the study is looking at cancer development in these dogs and maybe identifying risk factors for cancer development. And so if they develop a cancer, we collect additional samples, we collect biopsies, and when these dogs die, we 
try if the owners are okay with it to also get them to have a full necropsy done and we collect even more samples and these are all banked and then we started offering them probably about five years ago now we started offering researchers access to data and samples this is just a little bit familiar probably for people in our part of the world particularly in new zealand there's a study that's been going for 50 years here um, based at the Human Medical School in Dunedin, which is about two hours south of where we are here in Timaru in the South Island of New Zealand, called just the Dunedin Study, where they're basically doing the same thing as you, um, where they got a cohort of people that were born at a certain time and have just been following them through for coming up 50 years now with all sorts of really interesting stuff. So I can completely see the benefit in doing this. Question about the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. Why Golden Retrievers? Uh, good question. Because we were looking primarily at cancer, and our the folks at the time, which was our CEO, Dr. Patty Olson, Betty Morris, who is Mark Morris Jr.'s, Jr.'s widow and also a nutritionist by training, and Dr. Rod Page, who is a pretty well-known oncologist wanted to do a study looking at cancer risk factors. So that was the basis. Then they thought about, well, what breed has a high risk of cancer? And there are several of them, right? Golden retrievers being one. We think of boxers sometimes, or we think of certain breeds being predisposed to a particular cancer like Rottweiler's and osteosarcoma. But they settled on golden retrievers because of their high overall cancer rate and because they're a super popular breed in the United States, and we needed 3,000 dogs. And we felt like that's a really large group of people. They're very passionate about cancer in their breed, and we felt it would ease our recruitment needs to get 3,000 dogs with that kind of group. Again, large numbers of dogs, very popular, and a breed group that was really anxious to find out about cancer. What kind of results have you got out of the study so far? Pretty interesting. I'm glad, actually, Brian, that we're talking because we just published probably the first cancer study from the group. As you can imagine, even though it's 10 years, the average age of the dogs is nine. And unfortunately, we've, we didn't have a lot of cancer, right? the first five or six years of the study. As these dogs move to middle age, seven, eight years of age, we start seeing cancer. And the first one that we published was actually the work of a summer student, an intern at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he looked at lymphoma, which we know is the most common cancer in dogs, and proximity to things like a coal plant or, you know, some kind of toxin exposure that was, that was recognized environmental. And he tried to see if lymphoma incidence was higher. When we look at all the dogs, and they had 50 dogs with lymphoma and matched control, 100 matched controls, and they did not actually find any links between exposure and lymphoma, though there were trends toward the more exposures you had, the more chance you had lymphoma. But what was interesting is there was some suggestion that certain exposures 
were related to different lymphoma subtypes. And I think we tend to lump lymphoma together, but as technology has improved, we know there's probably at least 20 some different subtypes recognized in dogs. There's even more in people. People listening may be familiar with the most obvious, which is Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Well, there's a lot of different ones. And they did start to find some association. The team at University of Wisconsin-Madison is actually continuing this study, and they're looking more in depth at a larger group of dogs from our study to see if they can find risk factors. So that's the biggest, I think, cancer one we've had so far. We've had a lot of other publications. One that was really interesting because, of course, the dogs all aged out of being three or four years of age. Once they got past that, we looked at the timing of spay-neuter in the development of obesity and non-traumatic orthopedic injuries. And you're going to have to forgive me because I don't know how New Zealand is about spaying and neutering dogs. You probably know in the United States, it's super common. It's not common in Europe. And what we found was no matter when dogs were spayed or neutered and they were divided into under six months of age, six to 12 months of age, or over 12 months of age when they were spayed, neutered. And they found that risk for obesity increased no matter when they were spayed or neutered. For orthopedic injury, and this is blowing your cruciate, right? I, we're told now in the United States, if you have a large breed dog, don't spay or neuter them before maybe one year of age because of this incidence of non-traumatic ligament rupture. And what we found was if they were spayed or neutered under six months of age, all other things being equal, like their body conditions, these weren't like super heavy dogs. Like we, all of that was equilibrated for that they do have quite a higher bit of incidence of orthopedic injury that did not hold out if they were spayed or neutered over six months of age. And that was a kind of big result because at least in the United States, it's there are some laws about when to spay neuter dogs, and maybe we can't make this blanket statement like all dogs should be spayed or neutered at a certain time. The studies obviously done with golden retrievers, are these results relevant for other breeds of dogs? That's a good question. That's what we're hoping for. And I often think of what we're finding in the, if everybody can imagine like a series of concentric circles. And what we're finding, we can probably say, well, this applies to Goldens. What we're hoping is the next circle out is this applies to other breeds of dogs. The next circle out is this applies to other animals. And the bigger circle may be this applies to people. And we're hoping, depending on what we find right now, that this will actually also stimulate people to look in certain directions. Like maybe we'll pare things down and it's like, don't look at, um, don't look at whether you have carpet on the floor. That doesn't seem to be a problem, but maybe exposure to what cooking fuel you use may be an area for further study. And this study, as you mentioned, the New Zealand study, this study was based on the Framingham Heart Study, which is entering its 75th year in the United States. It is a study of heart disease, right? And before Framingham, for example, we didn't really know that smoking was a risk factor for heart disease. I mean, we take that for granted now. Framingham brought up the question 
And then people said, okay, we need to look at that further. Same for the cholesterol question, although that seems to be changing all the time. The uh, hypertension was not necessarily always linked to heart disease. There was some thought that was a normal change in older people, but it's not necessarily, right? All of those questions were brought about by Framingham, which then pointed researchers like, hey, we better pay more attention to this and dive into this area. And we can forget some of these other areas. And that's part of what we're hoping with this study is that it will raise questions, too, of areas that need further research. You've touched on it talking about these human studies. Is there any crossover then between what you are doing and humans, or not even just humans, other species, horses, cats, cows? How transferable is the information you're getting? I hope that the, especially the environmental exposures might help point people in directions. We have, your, your question about people is an interesting one because when the study was conceived, there was some discussion about asking about human health outcomes for the people in the households, right, with these dogs. But we have some pretty strict privacy laws here in the United States, so we could not include those questions. But it might be something that we could pursue. But I can definitely see the environmental exposures might be really helpful because we do ask a few questions about other pets in the house on the questionnaire. And maybe we can somehow put those together. I think for sure the environmental exposures. The other thing is it might stimulate some human researchers to say, hey, in this area, there's dogs that seem to have a lot of this type of cancer. Maybe we should look at what, what people in the area are doing or poll the veterinarians in the area and see if we see a lot of cats with certain types of cancer. What areas are on the horizon, things that you are looking at in the future? Yeah, we've got a couple interesting um, nested studies. Again, as we get more data, people are more interested, right? And especially cancer data, which we've had a rapid acceleration of our dogs with cancer. So we have a couple projects. One is called the Golden Oldies Project, which is looking at, we, we recruited dogs through our network of dogs that weren't in the study, but were over about 12 years of age that had never had cancer. So golden retrievers that survived a long time because we won and we collected DNA from them via blood to actually do genetic analyses comparing these oldsters with dogs from our study that had developed cancer. And the idea was to look at genetic markers for disease and whether we can pick up mutations maybe that occur over time or again a genetic marker similar to like the BRCA1, BRCA2 gene in women and breast cancer maybe that would point to a, a risk. That's in progress. We have another really exciting study we're going to be starting soon in conjunction with the Mayo Clinic in Arizona that's going to look at, we're going to ask our cohort folks to donate their dog's brains um, to this group because they study Alzheimer's and dementia in people. We have behavior data, including cognitive decline questionnaires that we are asking our cohort to fill out every year. And what they want to do is look at these brains and dogs and compare them to their cognitive behavior evaluations and apply all the techniques they look at in, for people with Alzheimer's and dementia 
to see if there are some parallels there because it's possible dogs could also be a very good model of that disease as a natural occurring right problem. And that would be really, really huge, um, not just for dogs, because can we figure out some things that would help dogs, but also obviously people. And then you get all, you can loop that back to exposures and risk factors potentially for those changes in the brain. And those are some exciting ones. We're also doing another one on osteoarthritis too. Can we just quickly go back to that discussion that we're having on relevancy for other breeds and for other species? The DNA analysis, how much of that is transferable between species and between breeds? Well, um, probably might be very transferable between breeds, right? Because we know dogs, even though they look different, are probably not as genetically dissimilar as we think. And one of the things with looking for a candidate gene means if you find something in the golden, it gives you a target to shoot for, and it makes it much easier and faster to look for a similar gene in another breed, right? So if you find, well, there's a mutation in this gene and it's associated with lymphoma, let's go look for that in Bernese mountain dogs, which get a lot of lymphoma, or other breeds. It, it just accelerates the research in those breeds when you know where to look because genomes are couple billion base pairs, right? So it's really long and it's tedious. But if you have a place to look, it can make it much, much faster. And we're hoping that some of that genetic analysis we're doing will translate. Now, when we get to people, it gets a little trickier sometimes. But what we know is that even though the name of the gene may be different, if we know that it regulates, for example, mitochondrial function, well, then we can go and say, well, maybe we should look at the genes we know in people that are associated with mitochondrial function or whatever and see if there's a similar mutation or maybe that mutation is significant in people. I think it's going to be a bigger stretch for a while with people as far as genetic analysis, but I think for dogs, it's going to be a no-brainer. And we're participating in some of that now looking at obesity genes, which have definitely been shown in Labradors, and now we're looking for them in golden retrievers. I'm looking now at the longevity of the study. I mean, you're up to 10 years and now retrievers don't go much longer than 12 or 13 or 14 years. Have you got another cohort starting? You know what? That's a really good question. Uh, this study is costing the foundation $32 million to run. That's a big chunk of change. for. That's huge for us. That's um, We raise a lot of money, but that's a lot for us. And whether we... I don't know that we have the appetite to do another study like this right away. We are starting a sort of citizen science initiative where we're going to do some online kind of work. Uh, that's going to be our next sort of big project that we're going to be launching soon called Citizen Pet. Once we do that, it's, it's a question of whether we want to do it. There are other studies now underway that are uh, there's a huge, if you've heard of the Dog Aging Project, that's a really big project in the United States. It's funded by the NIH, which really helps. And my dog is actually part of the Dog Aging Project because she's a Labrador. And they've got over 40,000 dogs right now in their database and getting more. They have different arms. And whether, and that we know that there are other groups looking at things. I, I don't know. We've kicked it around. Uh, maybe about doing a cat study. We've had people approach us about horses and doing some kind of uh, equine cohort study, but, you know, right now, no plans. 
So if people are interested in the study, now, there's two different groups I'm looking at. One is is the veterinarians, well, three groups now I think, but the veterinarians, the owners and other researchers. Is it possible for them to become involved? I mean, me as a clinician in the States, if I was in the States thinking, oh yeah, I would like to be quite part of this. Is there any way that I can join it? And if our non-clinical listeners have got a retriever, from what you're saying, it's probably too late to jump on board, but how do people get involved if they want to? Right. Well, we're the, our cohort is closed, so we're not going to take on any more dogs. They, But people can certainly read about what we're doing on the website. We do have something called Data Commons, which is open to people, and it's harsh. We're releasing data all the time into it, right? And you can go in and kind of muck around. We try to keep it to people who have like a .edu address. So education, um, nonprofits can come in and look at it. And you can apply to have access to the data and look at it. The reason we did that was to try to get people to start formulating questions and then coming to us to ask for samples and data. And we have a process where several times a year we put out a call and allow people to apply for access for samples and data. And we review their proposals and send them stuff after that. And we have people from all over the world who are doing that right now. Certainly our citizen pet initiative, we're going to open to anyone um, to, to supply data to us. And it's going to be all digital questionnaires and things like that. And then we will collect that data as well. Uh, one thing, I don't know if it, if it, if you, I think you can't be international, unfortunately, to be in the dog aging project because that takes all comers and it doesn't matter what age your dog is or breed or anything. But I think it's confined, sorry, to the United States right now. Um, but so, it, yeah, it's kind of limited for folks who are in other countries, but you can poke around the website and see we have all the papers up there. I just mentioned two of the biggest ones. You can find out what's going on with our cohort. You can read stories about what's going on with them and what our plans are as we start releasing more information. Have you got any sort of a mailing list if people are interested so they don't have to keep an eye on the website? They can just get notified when stuff happens? Yes, for sure. You can sign up. We have, you mentioned Fresh Scoop. So we have a Fresh Scoop. Actually, it's a um, email that comes out once a month. It's mostly geared toward veterinarians, but we have a lot of folks who aren't veterinarians who get that information and it'll talk about some of the latest papers that came out of the that we've funded and it could be not just girls but that's our acronym golden retriever lifetime study um but it, all of our all of our stuff and you can absolutely sign up for that we also have tips and tales which is another newsletter e-newsletter that goes out once a month we have an animal news quarterly that's a bigger we don't mail it anymore. We email it out, but it's a much more extensive that describes everything. We talk about all the species we help because we do lots more than just the Golden Retrieval Lifetime Study and, and some dog and cat studies. We do horses, llamas and alpacas and wildlife. And there's always something new coming out there. We cover, I cover a lot of that. If you go to our website, you can sign up for all of those and just get them in your mailbox. And your website is? Very long. Sorry, guys. More Sandoval Foundation, one word, dot org. Now, 
we're on a podcast. Tell me about your podcast, your Fresh Scoop podcast. Right. Our podcast comes out once a month and we primarily focus on some of the research that our researchers are doing. And we have our next one in September is on rabies. We tend to be, it tends to be very science focused. We have, but we have a really broad audience of veterinarians, vet students, veterinary technicians, a bunch of our high level science oriented supporters join us and we rotate. We tend to focus more on dog and cat health issues, but we will touch on horses. Like I said, September's rabies. We're going to have a podcast coming up soon on bats and bat viruses, since that seems to be a hot topic that everybody's interested in. We've done them on canine behavior. We did a whole series on feline behavior all over the board, and but primarily featuring our researchers. And available wherever you get your podcasts from. Just to finish up here, Kelly, we focus mainly on the Golden Retriever Lifestyle Study, but obviously this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as the work that the Morris Animal Foundation does. So I guess I would encourage our listeners to visit your website, which again is morrisanimalfoundation.org all one word and have a look around subscribe to some of the emails and listen to the Fresh Scoop podcast I'll actually put a link for this in our show notes as well if you like so you mentioned earlier that the Aging Dog Project is restricted to the USA are all of your projects US based or more widespread we do fund around the world right now. We have we have several grants in Australia right now. We have one in Tasmania on those Tasmanian devils. If you know about their transmissible facial tumors, that's a big one for us. We have one, I believe, in New Zealand on your yellow-eyed penguins that are having some problems with chicks dying. And so we have one there. Uh, yeah. So in other words, we fund globally. Most of our global ones tend to be a lot of the wildlife, as you can imagine, focused studies, but we've funded all, all, all over the world. Uh, everybody can come to us and ask for funding. We have some in South America. We have a few in Africa this year, which is a new place for us. But um, yeah, check us out. Kelly, thank you very, very much for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. This has been so fun. And that's it for another episode of the Vet Podcast. All of our links are in one place at beacons.ai slash vetpodcast. That is B-E-A-C-O-N-S dot A-I slash vetpodcast. And while you're there, don't forget to buy us a coffee. On behalf of me, Brian Greger, and everybody else involved in the making of this podcast, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again soon. Mm-hmm.